Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Literally Cajuns. Literally Cajuns. It's literally Cajuns. Chris and Bao here. Hey everyone. How are you, Chris? I made it through another week of unemployment. I'm still alive through yet another <laughs> weekend vendor, but I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, love and life. I am glad that I got over the huge hangover I had this morning. I think I went out a little too hard last night and this weekend. Um, I also think like after quitting vaping and cutting down on like other stuff, I feel like the drinking has gone up. It's like I tallied my drinks over the weekend and I'm like, that is not a girl. That is not a number you want to have. So I'm trying to like cut stuff down, but also really glad that just an hour before this recording, my hangover stopped. So I'm feeling a little better. Yeah. I only got up an hour ago, so we'll see what happens. (laughs) Oh, you did? (laughs) Oh, wow. Well, so it's Folsom week, so you have more to look forward to. And it's bittersweet for me because it's really like one of my favorite weekends like ever. I have so many wild memories with you, with a lot of my different friends um, over the last decade, especially the time I lived there. And I won't be going this year, so that's why it's kind of bittersweet. No, I'm so sad and almost disappointed. I know. I sold my Aftershock ticket this morning. And for the unanointed or the unbondaged, Folsom is short for Folsom Street Fair. And it's an annual BDSM, kink, and leather street fair in SF that Don't and I have been going to a lot in the last decade. Um, And again, one of my favorite weekends. It's like one of the events that's very unique to San Francisco. 
And people come from all over the world for it. And strangely, even Berlin, which usually is like the capital of kink, they have an annual Folsom Festival named after the San Francisco one. It just happened like last week. It's one of those weekends in SF where I feel like people actually fly in for. Mm-hmm. Pride in SF, people are like, uh, I didn't want to go to New York Pride or, <laughs> or like I'm prided out. And it's like a lot of locals. But when you go to Folsom, it's like, you meet people from all over the world, and that's, like, an amazing part, feature of the weekend. Yeah, and it's been around a while. I knew about Folsom when I was younger but didn't start going till 2010 um, to visit the Asian HIV AIDS Org, Asian Pacific Islander Wellness Center. I was looking at that booth and talking to folks there, and I looked to my left, and my roommate is... <laughs> has his pants around his ankles getting rimmed right in front of me. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, this, this is what Folsom is. And I started going to Folsom myself uh, afterwards, but never really liked the leather scene aspect of it. So I st- started sewing harnesses out of neckties and bike inner tubes. Mm-hmm. It's my own take on it. Instead of the now prolific gay uniform, that's the leather harness. Which is what I'm wearing right now. And wait, what are you, you're wearing one of the harnesses you made, right? Yeah, what does yeah, it look yeah. like to people who, I who aren't looking? out of straps from Forever 21 that say United States Post Office. And <laughs> what I like about it is that uh, I can sweat through it. It doesn't smell. And it's uh, my path towards veganism. <laughs> I have actually one of your necktie harnesses, and I, I love that one. And my first Folsom was also volunteering through the API Wellness Center at a booth. I was like, I think 20-something. I remember because my volunteer shift manager, I forgot what his name was, but after that shift, I saw him in so much gangbang porn after. (laughs) (laughs) Like, getting real, but like 10 guys. And I'm just like, oh, he was was a very sweet volunteer shift manager. (laughs) And then um, one of the other volunteers at the booth asked if I've ever gotten fisted or would be interested in getting fisted for the first time. And he, it wasn't creepy at all. It was, he did it in such a nice and friendly and like kind of safe way. And he told me that uh, to sell me on the point, he told me that sometimes when he fists first timers, he, he likes to get to the point where he can feel their heartbeat on his knuckles. And I thought that should win a Pulitzer prize. The way, the way <laughs> Cause I mean, I declined, but all the love to all the fisting lovers out there feeling heartbeats on their knuckles. And I too have also gotten fucked and eat out on the dance floor next to you at the Folsom parties. So I'm sorry, officially oh, sorry I know. for that. And you know, <laughs> I first thought that that was wild a few years ago until just recently my body was used as a prop by a friend to stand up while he was being fucked on the dance floor. I didn't know what else to do, so I just stood there and just held him up. And that was it. <laughs> what do you mean held him up? Like, so he was, you were dancing, you guys were down the and, dance floor. And he put his hands on me while he's getting fucked so that he wouldn't get pushed over. <laughs> wow. Wow. I think I heard of that story. And before I went to Folsom, I always thought of the BDSM community as white and older, like just daddy bears. And I think a lot of people still think that. And it wasn't until I went to my first Folsom weekend that I realized like there's a lot of Gaysians there. There's a lot of people of color who participate as well. And seeing so many of my friends participate publicly in the bondage and the leather and the kinks or in just in some fun, wacky ways, I felt like that gave me permission to explore too. And oh my God, I remember like my first Folsom where I actually like went, not just volunteer, but just went, went taking off my shorts and wearing only a jockstrap and a harness 
I felt like the edgiest, kinkiest person in the world. I was like so nervous for that first hour of like being seen or exhibited in that way. Which is funny because now I look back on that and like, you know, jockstrap and harnesses, you know, can feel like the bare minimum. No pun intended. All right. <laughs> so this week, uh, to celebrate Folsom Street Fair and what it means beyond just the fair, um, our episode today is on kink, BDSM, Yay. and sex positivity. And uniquely to the eyes and voice of our guest. Uh, we came across him on Twitter doing hot takes on Asian representation in porn and kink. He's also an adult performer and recently shot his first kink.com scene, which he shot a few weeks ago and is out now. And while our holes are not ready, it's time for us to talk about kink, BDSM, and sex positivity. And also, you can't talk about sex positivity without kind of talking about the sex negativity either. And I know we'll definitely get into that. So let's bring him on and start the show. Well, hello, Zed. Welcome to the podcast. Um, how are you? And what are you doing this weekend for Folsom? Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, uh, I'm huge fans, so it's, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, and I'm excited for Folsom. Uh, I'm currently in New York, and I'm flying back to San Francisco to give a talk as part of a panel on sex work, archives, and the Asian diaspora. This on mm, Thursday, nice. and they're paying for my flight back, so I decided <laughs> to extend it <laughs> so I can ex- enjoy the weekend, you know, and stay on for the fair. Uh, I'm going to the fair on Sunday, of course, and after that, I'm go-go dancing at the Oasis uh, from 5 to 6. So if you're in the area, you can come by and say hi. And of course, I've arranged a couple of collabs with like Damien, Damien Dragon, um, maybe going to some of the parties. You know, I haven't bought any tickets yet, I know. And of course, I'm still looking for my real bad ticket. Do you have tickets to real bad? Um, I might have a connection for you. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to use this podcast to broadcast that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I have so much FOMO. Oh, you mentioned that, that panel you were doing. Where is that? That's in Berkeley. Uh, they are inviting some sex workers and we are interfacing with uh, some people researching into archives and sex work. And it's going to be quite an exciting panel. There are going to be performances. Uh, and yeah, I'm looking forward to being part of that. And I, I've, I've seen a lot of your content on Twitter. Um, I've read a lot of your excellent blogs on Substack. But for the unanointed, describe what you do and who you are, Zed. So I... Hmm, where do I begin? I'm currently doing mediated sex work. I like to call it mediated sex work because I don't take in-person clients and I enjoy performing for the camera. So I have OnlyFans, I have Just for Fans, uh, and I'm making content. At the same time, I'm working with my husband, Thick Two, also known as Tom, and we do rope bondage photography. So uh, it's collaborations with other models and we invite them to our studio here in Crown Heights in Brooklyn Uh, and then we tie them up and and we take beautiful photos of them and then we make a scene and we edit and we film you know Mm -hmm. and at the same time I'm also a graduate student I'm trying to finish my PhD trying really 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 hard to finish my PhD (laughs) so I'm thinking about how these two things intersect you know, the labor of sex work and porn work at the same time 
with like research and performance, basically. Well, and what does mediated uh, sex work? How would you describe that as different from like? I, I think I get a sense, but like, yeah. can you elaborate on that? Yeah, no, it's great because um, uh, especially during the pandemic, so many people turn to just for fans and on- online fan sites uh, as a source of income. You know, so mediated sex work is basically anything that involves like the screen. So Chatterbait or Cam4, you know, and it's a relatively recent phenomena, you know. And I like to call it mediated sex work because a lot of people say, okay, I'm not doing sex work because uh, I'm, I'm not really meeting my clients. But by thinking about it as also pro- under the umbrella of sex work, you know, that's a way of considering different forms of coalition with other sex workers uh, mm-hmm. and thinking about mm-hmm. fighting for certain rights which, uh, and recognition, you know, so uh, that's why by thinking and putting on the label of like mediated sex work, that's one approach of forming alliances in a way. More powerful of a labor force if you're able mm-hmm. to do that too. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, we brought you on to this episode, the Folsom, the kink episode, because we want to hear more about your experience as a kink performer. And I think we want to start at the beginning. Now, how mm-hmm. did kink find you? Ooh, wow. This is a really, really long time ago. It's like digging back into the archives. So basically, since young, when I was very young, I was watching like Hong Kong uh, movies with my family. And there's this particular scene of a male protagonist being tied to a bed by two female protagonists. And then slowly, as part of their revenge for him two-timing them, cutting his clothes off, and then leaving him, and it's like uh, uh, he's like utterly humiliated by the entire experience. But as a young boy, I remember watching that scene, you know, with like Chow Yun Fat and Sally and Wang Tzu Xian. Oh, it's Chow Yun Fat. Yeah, wow. <laughs> and Sally Sex, Very mm-hmm. sexy, uh, mm-hmm. like sexy daddy. Um, and and of course, you know, like having such a powerful male protagonist being immobilized and held down. And that kind of power reversal, that role reversal that happens, you know, that uh, where these two women uh, are like taking control of the situation. I just found that really exciting in a way. And, Mm. you know, there was something stirring in my loins, you know, I like my (laughs) heart palpitations. It helps that he looks really attractive too, you know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So maybe that's part of the reason. Yeah, and even when you were telling that story, your eyes were closed, like, it looked like you were imagining you were there again. <laughs> yeah, I was fantasizing, fantasizing uh-huh. that I was in the room. Yeah, but, yeah, but that, that particular image just stuck with me. And growing up, you know, I've encountered these images in gangster films, on, on TV, in cinema, again and again. I kept asking myself why I'm drawn to these moments when mm. there's some form of power play and restraint and, and submission that is going on. Then at the same time, I'm from Singapore and there's corporal punishment in our uh, education system, you know. So there will be a boy and it's a, a very spectacular event, you know, as part of morning assembly. Uh, they would they were pull and they will have the boy up on stage and they will sometimes pull down his pants, you know, and they will cane him in front of like the entire school. And of course, there's a mix of shock and horror and 
you know, the intended effect was to remind all of us not to break any rules in the school. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I also felt that same sensation when I was watching that Chow and fat movie come back again. You know, it's like this excitement, palpitations, you know, so, uh, like strangely intrigued by the entire scenario. So I think those two moments were the moments when I realized that I was into a different sort of sexual activity beyond just vanilla uh, and beyond just uh, regular, you know, it's like intimacy. Yeah. And it just Mm. sort of grew from there. And it was much later on with the internet that I started going online and I discovered and found more people with the same kind of sexual proclivities, let's just say. Mm. Um, (laughs) And then you start learning about rope bondage, its history, you know, and where it came from. And there are actually people online who do this and they're experts. And I started meeting them and that's how everything sort of snowballed. And I met my husband in 2017 and we did a session and we fell in love and here mm-hmm. I am, you know, now I'm in front of the camera and I'm doing rope bonding and I'm helping him and assisting him in the entire scene itself. Yeah, so in a way, it's come full circle. I became the person from the little boy who's watching the image and the media, you know, to the person who's producing the media. You, you talk about rope bondage. What I want to get more at is like, what what are your other kinks or what is it about rope bondage that is kinky for you? Hmm, yeah. So for me, uh, I like to divide it into two different ways of thinking about kinks. You know, the first one is very material and object-based. And I think this is the, 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 the categorization of kinks that most people will be familiar with. You know, are you into leather? Are you into rope? Are you into rubber? So it's material and object-based where the thought of certain fetish objects itself would incite a certain kind of pleasure. But the second way I like to think about it, and I think it's more akin to my philosophy of kink and my the way I approach my kink is thinking about sensations so mm, uh, mm-hmm. like is it is it uh, am I into a certain kind of restraint a kind of immobilization am I into like um, breath play am I into flogging you know like what kind of sensation it produces in your body am I into pain some people are for me personally I'm into like restraints. So it's not so much the material itself. I like rope bondage because of the artistry of bondage itself. It can be leather, it can be metal. You know, as long as I'm held down, I'm held tightly by the object itself, I'm immobilized, you know, that gives me a certain kind of pleasure. Can you describe what happens during rope bondage and that what continues to draw you to that and you and your partner, obviously? So I started participating as a rope bunny. And a rope bunny is a person who gets tied. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the rope breaker is the person that ties, yeah? So I've always been the rope bunny most of the time, but over the past few years, I've sort of started to tie people and learn how to tie. Um, but I started around 2008 when I first met the, my, my rigger in Singapore. And I remember at that time, we were just like, fooling around and playing with rope, we really didn't know what we were doing. It was Mm -hmm. only until much later, and especially with my husband, then you start to think about rope as a ritual itself. You know, so for me, you know, rope is a very time-consuming process. So it's almost like a three-act structure to it. There's like the beginning and where you start putting on the rope. And then there's the middle when the rope is on the body itself and you start playing or 
having a scene, and then there's the untying process itself, which is the third act of the entire journey. And each session can be like two or three hours, depending on how long you would like the session to go. Uh, and what I like about it is that it's a very meditative process, especially mm. when you do the tying and the untying. And my favorite part of the entire art is actually the untying part of the process. Uh, most people tend to immediately think about, okay, the rope is tied. And when you watch a lot of rope bondage porn, that's basically how it happens, you know. <laughs> it's like one moment the rope is off, then the next moment the rope is on, then the, the next moment the rope is off again. You know, mm -hmm. you don't really see the tying and the untying, which for me is the integral part of the entire experience as a bunny, as a person being tied. Mm -hmm. uh, especially the third part, because that's usually the moment when you have the most intimacy, you know, and a sort of aftercare of the scene itself, which is really important in kink. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it's not just setting up the scene and enjoying the scene, but that moment of intimacy and contact between two bodies as you start to untie and you care for the body and you start seeing the rope marks and the imprints that it leaves behind. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's like a marker of the session itself. Uh, and for me, it was it's beautiful to watch and witness if I'm behind the camera, but it's also beautiful to be part of that scene. For me, rope bondage is like a measure of time um, and a measure of also space in a way. Uh, some rope tops actually have sets of ropes that are specific to different clients if they are being paid to do it. Mm. And the rope, Length itself is measured precisely to the, 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 the client's body and his dimensions. So if he does, she or she, he does the harness, you know, it just ends and whatever loose ends or tail they have, they will cut it off. So the next time they have the same client again, they will know that, okay, this is where it ends. You know, and this is the harness and it, it ends exactly and it's as much rope as is necessary for this particular person and this particular body. You know, so it's almost like tailoring itself, tailoring a set of clothes for this particular person, tailoring an experience for this individual. Okay, so all this talk about kink and rope bondage and what you love about it, but what do you think is the most misunderstood about it? Um, there are two things about kink uh, that often are misunderstood. And I think the first thing is that kink is seen as something that is exceptional, something that is abnormal uh, in re relation to like the normal. And I'm using scare quotes for this, for people who can't see me doing the scare quotes. <laughs> yeah, and the implication is that kink is something out of a normative sexual experience. But I believe this is my belief, and I might be wrong, and don't cancel me for this. But the <laughs> truth is that I think everyone, everyone is a little bit kinky. You know, mm -hmm. everybody mm -hmm. has latent tendencies to enjoy kink. You know, one example is okay. Do you find pleasure in power play? You know, uh, mm -hmm. in bed. <laughs> you know, even dom sub top bottom roles are kind of a role play. You know, if you really, really think and analyze it. You know, and even a like husband and wife relationship, a heteronormative husband and wife relationship is a sort of role playing. And I think kink allows us to build awareness into what we take for granted and bracket it and see it as, okay, if this is considered kinky, 
what else can we experiment and what else can we play with? And I think this element of play and having fun and really experimenting is something that's integral to the kink experience. There's a huge range, you know, and kink doesn't have to be very, very exceptional or different from the norm. It can be that there's like the mundane, the very easy and small kinks that you can enjoy. And the second thing I'd like to emphasize is that kink is often seen as something that's extreme because often what is extreme is circulated the most commonly in popular culture. So when you think about kink, immediately everybody thinks about fisting, you know. But it's not just that. It's not, it's not just about fisting, but fisting is the image that gets circulated widely because mm-hmm. it's spectacular. My personal kinky experience, you know, is, is it has a range, you know, on porn sets and in life, you know, I find that kink experiences are the ones that are the most intentional encounters that I've had. Because you really sit down with your sexual partner and you talk about what you enjoy and what you would like to experience in the scene. So it's a very intentional sexual experience. You know, you discuss your limits, uh, what your partner desires, and there's something about it that allows for a certain kind of very clear and lucid communication. And some of these skills I've learned from kink experiences and kinky sex, I've applied to even like my vanilla encounters because I don't (laughs) think we do it in vanilla encounters enough. When is the last time you ask your sexual partner like what does he or she enjoy or what do they enjoy in bed Mm -hmm. you know and what do they even listen to what you enjoy in bed you know Uh, and I think kink gives me this ability to be able to be very frank about talking about sex in a way mm-hmm. with my sexual partner. I've heard on a, a podcast um, where they had the CEO and founder of this like Asian food brand called Omsom. I forgot her name. Her name, her name is Kimberly Pham or Tran or Nguyen, <laughs> something Vietnamese. <laughs> uh, but she's also like a BDSM influencer. And she talked about introducing kink as like, don't do it in the heat of the moment because that like might ruin the mood. She's like, this sounds very prescriptive, but talk about it without alcohol. Like talk about it the next morning or in the morning yeah. over tea and coffee or something where you you can have like a clear and like kind of lucid conversation about it. Yeah. And because King is reliant on so much props and objects, like you have to buy the rope, you have to buy the flogger, <laughs> you have to buy the clothes packs, you know, it's like you go to Mr. S and you have to shop. You know? Oh, preparation. <laughs> yes. So this intentionality and you have to make the J-loop. You know, uh, mm-hmm. this intentionality, intentionality actually brackets and sets the frame for the scene itself. It prepares you and it also prepares your partner, you know. And I think the most important thing with kink is that when you negotiate with fetishes and you're aware with the dangers of an isolated objectification of a human body, you know, mm. that's when you become very, very sensitive to when you are objectifying the human and seeing the human as less than human and when it crosses a certain kind of ethical boundary, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I think kink allowed me to encounter and unpack uh, when my race is seen as a fetish. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it equips me with the skill to say yes to allow certain scenes to happen because I understand it as role play. And we can explore that further. But I also have questions for the both of you. Do you consider mm-hmm. yourself kinky? Do you have fetishes and kink? You know, after I say that, you know, it's like kink is a range. You can have the like the small kinks and the big kinks. You know, what are your impressions or what certain encounters you might have with the kink scene? 
You know, it's funny you ask that because I've all, I've sort of considered myself a little bit vanilla, especially with having so many both hypersexual and kinkier friends. And I was like, I always really think what's wrong with me, but I think I just recently learned, I think it's like I've repressed a lot of things. I think I might have been traumatized growing up in the middle of the HIV AIDS epidemic and being scared of sex. I've loosely started to loosen up. I'm, I'm, I'm learning. I like to make fun of myself for being vanilla because it's just a easy running joke. But sometimes, you know, behind closed doors, I'm trying new things. You know, I recently tried being a sub. And I don't say I loved it, but I didn't dislike it. But an interesting thing that I had go through my head was, well, uh, at least this guy's not white, because I won't do that for a white guy. <laughs> but I, I'm, 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 I'm dabbling in the dark arts now. <laughs> I think I kind of have a similar experience as you, Chris, or a similar answer in that, like, I guess to, like, subsection of my friends, mostly my straight friends, I may seem a little kinky, but I do feel like because we've been, we have friends who are, do embrace a lot more of their kinkier side. I feel like, oh, some of the stuff I like, it's pretty vanilla. Like I do like power exchange, dom and sub, but I'm like, I feel like that's kind of like level one and that doesn't seem too kinky to me anymore, personally. Maybe like a, a way to think about it. The question is also like, what kinks am I curious about? Or like that have surprised me. The one that surprised me the most that I got like a big rush from was like last year at Aftershock, which is why I'm so sad I'm not <laughs> going to Aftershock this year. Like I like fully got fucked in the middle of the dance floor. And that's something I was always just afraid of because I have deep down, like I have anxieties, fear of judgment, fear of what people think of me. And I don't want to have that happen in front of my friends. But in the heat of the moment it happened. And for some reason, because maybe I had tabooed that so much in my head, that it felt really empowering to, to, to do that. And I'm like, well, do I kind of like the exhibitionism a little bit? And I was hoping I'd go back to Folsom to like experiment with that again this year, but I just need to take a break from like the partying and all that. I think that made me more curious about all these other kind of things. Um, and so I started after that Folsom, I started to um, experiment with like my partners and stuff. And I think a lot of like role play dom sub stuff is like, really hot to me and then restraints i think i've i've uh experimented with that and i think for some reason it was like you know Folsom last year happened right when i left my job for the sabbatical and for some reason because i was no longer a pr spokesperson for a company i just felt like i could do whatever i want <laughs> like no one's gonna be like isn't that like the, the spokesperson for netflix <laughs> you know <laughs> I feel like some of the, a lot of the things that you're doing seem to be so very attached to our work lives. And like suddenly with all this freedom, we're just doing everything. I haven't thought about it too deep, but I do think that because the job I used to have was like, you had to make these hard decisions all the time and mobilize teams and be the one in charge. Like I love when I'm not in charge. I need to be told what to do. I need it's to like have release the control. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The like relinquishing control like that is really hot to me. And I think it's because like I, in my previous jobs have to be in control and like because of that and have so much self-control and discipline mm. so that that power exchange just really works, <laughs> really works for me. Mm -hmm. back, back to you, Zed. <laughs> <laughs> you've, um, you've written about, 
how your queer Asian, Gaijin experience informs your relationship to kink and porn. Can you talk a little bit more about that perspective? Because I think you, you illuminate a lot of very interesting points. Yeah, actually, I want to circle back to basically what Chris was saying, you know, about that particular experience, like you would choose to sub for a person of color, but you would not sub for a white person. And yes, I, think, I know it's problematic, but no, 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 it's it was not going through my head at that moment. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's not problematic at all. I think that's a very reasonable and rational uh, response. And at the same time, I have a lot of guilt too. You know, it's like my partner, we are in a transgenerational interracial relationship. He's white and I'm Asian. And we fulfill all the cliches of like dom-sub relation, I'm the submissive, he's dominant, you know. But at the same time, I'm also wondering, like, you know, what sort of scripts are we re-performing in a way? And whether these scripts are written for us and I'm just performing them, or is there a way of rewriting uh, certain scripts and certain scores? Um, And that's why I value being in kink or, you know, being more aware and being more open about talking about sex. I think a lot of times within the North American context, you know, the moment you say you're like Asian, you are rendered immediately, whether you're aware of it, you are rendered and interpolated as a fetish object, you know. Mm. So how I define fetish is fetish is basically something that where people find sexual gratification where and it's linked to a specific quality or a specific object where you appear as Asian first and then human, you know. And we get this a lot in America, uh, North America. Um, Within sexual practices and pornography, you know, race is automatically classified as a fetish, you know, Mm, and it's othered mm. and it's objectified and we see it on social apps and dating circles. So most people would see having sex with an Asian person as a kink or a fetish. You know, and I think this mm. has roots in Orientalism and the politics around being Asian in America and seeing Asian men as aliens, other feminized. So in a way, what Chris mentioned and my kind of doubts about my relationship is really fraught for people of colour to engage in sexual kink practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially when humans have been historically considered to be like objectified or perceived as less than human by dominant culture, you know. So I am always caught like second-guessing myself within the king community, you know, when somebody approaches me, does he have, does he like me as a person or is he just seeing me because of my race or and as certain expectations of Asians being submissive and therefore he would expect the role-play scenario to play out in a way where I would be the submissive in the scene, you know, Mm -hmm. and am I playing into this yet another stereotype? And the most important thing is that, you know, I find a lot of pleasure in bottoming, you know, that's how my body is sort of hardwired, you know, my pleasure is in the stimulation of my prostate. So what does it mean to be gay, Asian and bottom? You know, am I reinforcing Mm -hmm. a sort of cultural stereotype or are there ways of engaging with this stereotype and subverting it at the same time? Yeah. So these are the things that I'm thinking about when I'm writing about kink and porn and sex work. And I'm also reading and researching other academics who have been talking about it. And I find some writing really, really helpful in thinking about the agential capacity of being a bottom. 
<laughs> I know it sounds very complicated, but basically it's like, okay, is there a way of reclaiming bottomhood in a way that is like pleasurable? Where are you on that journey? Uh, it's sort of, yes, I'm claiming it very spectacularly. You know? <laughs> <laughs> in my content. Congratulations. In my content, yeah. But I'm also trying to be aware. This writer is, uh, is a professor and he writes about porn and Asian American representation of masculinity in porn. Yeah, it's just been really helpful to consider this kind of radical joy in being a bottom and, you know, and owning it. And, and actually claiming this, uh, what is considered shameful or less, you know, uh, and in a very powerful way. I ask you because I'm on that journey. Like, I feel <laughs> like, you know, when we go out, uh, that's why I love going to Folsom. Like, I could wear, like, the, the leather armband on the right. Without that, I think, because of my build, uh-huh. people always think I'm a top or a verse person. Right, right, it's top. Hey? No, oh, right, it's, it's, it's bottom. Yeah. And then I so, sometimes I'm like, God, like life would just be so much easier if I could be a better verse. Right. Mm-hmm. Or oh, if I was verse, like it, it, like it's over for all you bitches. Because, you know, it's like, <laughs> think it, that there's a lot of bottom shame there just because like, you know, I, I've, I've internalized that people don't like a bottom that's like big like this. And God, I didn't think I'd be talking about this today, but like, um, <laughs> yeah, like, or like they, they want to, they want to twink your kind of, they want that a certain type of a, mm-hmm. like, build if they want a bottom um and so like for me it's just like i'm not going to be everyone's cup of tea and also it's just like you know the internet the game memes they like make fun of bottoms a lot yeah. you know you go on like instagram and stuff like that like, like everyone's a bottom there's not enough tops right and then and, like, there's always just that like these running jokes where i've just like continued to internalize like okay i guess like i'm at the bottom of that totem pole and so hearing you talk about that about like rec- like reclaiming radical joy like for yeah. bottoms is like and, and and the fact that like my body is just like built that way, and I, I used to joke that you know when I was a kid and I accidentally stuck a finger up my butt, I wanted to stick it up there all the time. I want things up there all the time. <laughs> I've also wondered whether like there is something preventing me from like trying to top more, trying to to be more verse, right? Or or what's what's stopping me there? And I, I would love to own it more. I would love to own mm-hmm. it more. Yeah, and the more we talk about it, the more spaces and capacity, you know, we can choose to uh, be more critically aware, I would say. Yeah. And I think it's really changing with so many people going into content creation and really claiming and owning their bottomhood. (laughs) And you see like different sizes, different body types online. You know, it's not just conventional twinks, skinny, uh, young uh, bodies that are performing in like bottoming roles uh, anymore and hopefully this would pressure studio pornography to also expand and also consider a variety of different bodies being represented on screen so where do you think the queer asian community is on kink and sex positivity like what's going well what can be better (laughs) i really struggle with this question because it's like such uh like like I'm the spokesperson for the queer Asian community <laughs> on kink, you know, and I like to say that I'm not, you know, um, but I just think like even just breaking down these three words, queer, Asian, community, there's so much to unpack, you know, and their relationship to each other. Um, I think definitely there's a certain kind of visibility that has grown uh, mm-hmm. uh, over the past two decades, uh, 
they're more micro celebrities or king influencers, definitely. Like Kate Jaw, Yoshi Kawakasi. Mm-hmm. Kate uh, Jaw, yeah. Yeah, and different personalities who have really owned their king and be very proud and made it part of their personality and become like role models uh, in, the, in the scene itself. And they also provide like a range of different models of how to position themselves in relationship to the king. Uh, and definitely there's more dialogue, more conversation, uh, less silos, uh, partly because of the internet. Uh, there's more of a sense of community, but I still think that we are quite fractured in a certain way. This, uh, I hope, would change or improve when you know, we just talk a little bit more about sex uh, and be very honest about it. Um, on, on the term queer itself, and specifically the distinction between gay and queer, I think there's still this demarcation and compartmentalization that's happening. And you can see it at Folsom too, you know? It's like the gay community, and then there's a pansexual community, and mm-hmm. yeah, the QT community is like separate in a way. Uh, and they have their own separate events, their own separate parties. And I think a large part of that is because kink and leather culture in North America is still very much focused on title. Like, the events are structured around running for titles uh, and pageants, you know, mm. uh, title regimentation and hierarchy. And I think for an Asian person who is not part of the community, there's a huge barrier of entry, you know. But it's very steep because, first of all, leather costs so much. You know, not everybody is able to afford like a full leather suit in a way. So that in itself is a barrier to entry for POC. We can afford to create more flexible spaces and event spaces that do not sentence and gravitate around or orbit around like titles and pageants and leather culture. And I see that happening a little bit. Like a lot of people within the Gaijin community are embracing pop culture you know, mm-hmm. puppy uh, play. Uh, and, and that's a way of perhaps less barrier to entry, something that affords a little bit more anonymity because I think there's still this fear of being like recognized or being identified. And wearing a pup mask within a fetish environment is a safe way of involving oneself uh, without the, the fear of being outed or being captured on social media and that image being circulated. But another thing that is a little bit controversial, and I've talked about this with other kinksters, is that pup play, especially for Asians, when you wear a pup mask, your race gets obscured. Uh, and you do not get recognised as Asian. And I think that's kind of refreshing in mm. a way for them mm-hmm. to go into a sexual environment and not have people interpolate them first as Asian, but interpolate them as a pup, you know, or a body, or an object, or a, a, some uh, object of desire, in a way. And I think that's also part of the reason why a lot of gay Asian men are perhaps turning towards pup play as a form of, um, yeah, like mm-hmm. a fetish and a kink. Or like facial masks that cover everything. Yeah. yeah. Maybe the flip side of that question or related to that question, since you've written on it recently, just after mm-hmm. your, your kink.com debut, how do you think the kink or kind of porn community is doing on Asian representation? And not, not, to, not, not to make you the spokesperson, but I do think you have an interesting <laughs> perspective, right? 
So after I filmed the scene with Kink, you know, I've posted my my photos on Twitter and one of my followers basically reached out and said, wow, that's fantastic that they're actually working with Asian performers. And I was wondering why. You know, I've been a huge fan of Kink uh, and I've seen that Van, you know, Van Darkholm, he's basically mm-hmm. the, the director of production for a certain period of time and he's very prominent as a director for a lot of the scenes and... Uh, yeah, he, I believe he's Vietnamese-American. It strikes me as really puzzling that this person would say, okay, they're working with an Asian performer. But when I went to their database, I realized that out of the 1,400 performers in their, the gay section of their, their website, there are, only 11, there are only 10 Asian models or 10 models that identify, self-identify as Asian. And this mm-hmm. is one of the longest-running studios, like 20 over years. Uh, in, and it's one of the biggest studios in North America. Uh, and it just leads me to wonder, like, what are the other studios like in terms of representation of Asians within their archive? You know, if even such a progressive studio like Kink, you know, um, is, is only casting very sparingly, you know, Asian bodies. And I think this links back to the earlier conversation on whether Asians are permitted to be submissive, visually and spectacularly on screen, you know, Mm. because there's always this fear that, you know, in in life, we are already seen as objects or submissive in a way. And if we reinforce it by performing in studio pornography, are we reinforcing a certain kind of stereotype? Are we making the situation worse? Uh, And it's like a can of worms that a lot of studios are unwilling to engage with. So Mm -hmm. instead of trying to tackle the problem, they just blanket and say, okay, we are not going to cast people of colour in these sexual role-play fantasy scenarios because it's too complicated. And we can't Mm -hmm. decide or determine how the audience might receive it, you know. So this results in even fewer Asian performers being casted in roles, you know. Even if some of us might find pleasure in these scenarios, you know, but it's just too much trouble for these studios to manage or handle, yeah. So my hope is that they will start to involve, even in tricky or complicated situations, to involve more Asian performers and start a conversation around ethics of representation. And I think Kink does this very well. You notice that every scene, there's a beginning interview and there's an exit interview. And Mm -hmm. I believe that Kink is one of the only studios that do this, you know, where they bracket and they talk to you as a performer before and after. And and this helps to remind the audience who's watching it that this is a fantasy roleplay scenario. I've always battled with like, is this a casting issue by studios or is this more of a cultural thing that like Asian Americans have about not being seen and um, either like saving face from their family, that embarrassment and all that stuff. And it's probably like a mix of both that you, you don't want to be out there and spotted by your friends and, ruining your career or family or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But it's also like a self-reinforcing kind of cycle uh, mm-hmm. in a way. 
you know, because there are not enough people represented in porn. Therefore, studios think that it's not popular to cast. And therefore, you know, it's like a cycle that perpetuates over time. Mm -hmm. I think what's different is that now with OnlyFans and amateur porn, I see so much more Asian and Asian American performers. And it's, it's exciting. I'm so mm -hmm. excited about that now. Yeah. And they're, they're very savvy. And I look up to some of my fellow performers a lot, like, like and, and I admire their, their fortitude, you know. They actually selectively choose to work with certain studios and avoid certain studios because they understand that they're building, like, a certain kind of fan base and a certain kind of brand, mm -hmm. you know. And I think this was something that wasn't possible many years ago uh, where the power is actually in the hands of the performers more so than the studios, you know, and it's the studios who are wooing or uh, inviting certain performers to participate in scenes because they understand that they have a fan base that would be able to, you know, th that studios can capitalize on in a way. So it's really encouraging to see that kind of reversal of, of, of power relations happening in the industry, but there's still a long way to go. I just keep thinking back to... You know, one, one of the questions that you all gave me is that what is a formative experience of being Gaishan? And mm -hmm. one of my formative experience of being Gaishan is actually watching porn with Asian performers in it. And to mm -hmm. understand and appreciate that a body like mine can be seen as sexual and desirable, you know. And that's something that is so rare, you know. And I believe there are a lot of younger, impressionable minds that are of legal age out there watching this material online. And porn, in a way, can shape their perceptions, their desires, their pleasures, their self-worth, their ego, uh, and their subconscious. You know? mm -hmm. So it has a world-making capacity to it. And I think we have to treat it a little bit more intentionally and seriously. Yeah. Outside of kink, like... Well, who would you say is said Ching? Like, what's your origin story? <laughs> this is the question I didn't prepare for because I... <laughs> but I'll try to answer off the cuff. Um, uh -huh. So in my past life, I'm actually like a performance artist based in Singapore. Um, I, I, I'm a theater maker, I'm a theater artist. Um, and since coming to America and interfacing with um, yeah, I, I've been racialized a different way in Singapore. And I'm sure if you speak to your, your Singaporean friends or Southeast Asian or even Taiwanese friends, you know, uh, this racial consciousness is only made more acute when you come to an environment where whiteness is so present and omnipotent in a way mm -hmm. like America. So I would say that is this new evolution of uh, my artistic practice and also myself, you know, in thinking about myself as a first, you know, it's the first time I'm seeing it actually, but, you know, since I got married and I'm, I'm in the process of getting a green card, you know, it's really thinking about being a first-generation Asian-American and what mm. is the implication and the psychic kind of toll this has, you know, uh, and one way I think about this, that there's this, and it, it happens a lot in uh, critical race theory also, you know, this double consciousness, this awareness of there's a duplicity of the self. Like, I know that the time now in New York is like 10 o'clock at night, 
But somewhere in another reality in Singapore, that is, it's 10 a.m. in the morning and my parents are doing something and there's a whole parallel reality that is going on out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so, so grappling with this dissonance, this duplicity, I think it's something that a lot of first-generation migrants actually have to grapple with. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so, yeah, outside of kink, Zed is this person that is engaging with this new identity but also this duplicity of the self. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. All right, it's time to be real. The part of the episode where we get real about whatever's on our minds and hearts. So don't you? You up first. I, I guess like thinking about Folsom and kink like i said earlier i just always i think when i was younger i didn't feel this but now i feel almost embarrassed i don't have any kinks and i think it's because i was slow on the uptake i don't think i was very connected to um my emotions and what stirred that thing in me and I was always sex positive. I worked in a HIV AIDS prevention organization. Sex was always like a primary topic. And I guess in theory, that's where I w- lived, but not in practice. I was like, oh yeah, I've always wanted to be a slut, but I'm just not doing it. Um, <laughs> and so, and it wasn't for like a trying. I'm exploring it now. And I guess that's where I'm at. It's, I'm not embarrassed. I think it took me like so long like 43 years to try some some like new things and uh and be more comfortable with it uh i remember recently uh someone asked me if i would be into humiliation and i was like oh god uh, i'll give it a try but i was like really no i'm a nice guy I'm like what am i going to say to this guy and before i could even get to into it 
I suddenly realized he meant the other way and he started calling me a dirty faggot. And I was like, oh, okay, uh, let's, let's reverse that. And I, I didn't know how to respond. And I just I played along for a little bit. I was like, all right, this is, this is not for me. Uh, but at least I tried. That would be for me. I love that. I love it when guys <laughs> call me stuff like that. <laughs> well, what, what are you, um, Folsom Weekends this weekend, what are you going to try? Uh, you know, what's funny is that I don't usually try these things during Folsom. I, I feel mm. like even though that's like the best place to do it, uh, I like it being on my own time and I like one-on-one interactions. So, mm. uh, I know that I'm not into public sex. And so I take it, I take it home and we try things there. Maybe someone will find me, bring me home and we can try something new. This is my call out to you, our, our adoring public. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, just hop on a sling, just hop on one sling and see what happens. Uh, I got to get over my, um, my, my issues with like a used, sling i don't like other people's fluids oh. unless i'm prepared for them to be there yeah and it's leather too wait what i have a question it? yeah have the both of you tried rope bondage have you tried rope bondage um uh yeah i've been tied up but not okay. in a sexual manner only for uh j- just for visuals uh okay. and and having fun with that okay. I know, i've never t- told this story before but yes i did try it with my ex and he's like, you want to try? I'm like, sure, that sounds hot. But once, by the time I was tied up, I started crying. <laughs> and I don't know, I don't know why. But anyways, and and remembering this now because I do want to try it. But mm-hmm. I don't know what happened there. Maybe it was like too random, or we didn't talk about mm-hmm. it or something. Or I was just like, yeah, let's just play around. But yeah. I just felt like, and he, he and he was my boyfriend. Like he wasn't like yeah. it was in a dangerous situation, but something is that is that common, Zed? Or yes, I've cried before oh. in scenes. Yeah, because it's oh. really intense. It's really intense. The emotions that you're going through and the kind of tightening and restraint. It's almost like being held. It's like being in a cocoon. So mm. it might be because of the intensity of the emotion that you know I've cried in scenes. You know, and it's perfectly okay to do that. You know, and that's what King draws out. You know, it draws out really extreme, intense emotions. And it's not oh, about okay. psychologizing it, like what you mentioned. Mm. It's not about like going through it and working through it or working through trauma. It's just like recognition and understanding that that's what happens. But it also yeah. allows you to understand and recognize that feeling in a way and apprehend it and to appreciate it that you can have such an intense experience with a partner or somebody that you're intimate with. It was a time where I didn't really have like that emotional intelligence to like uh, have a follow-up conversation. We just never talked about it again. <laughs> oh Until God. now, like I'm like bringing it up now as so if like Josiah hears this, he's going to be like, oh, oh yeah, that, that moment <laughs> where I felt really bad. Oh my God, that reminds me of when I was experimenting and I was tied to the bed and I, I think it was around that time I got so anxious. I, I had, I had to tell him to, to, to loosen it all up and let me go. I had this weird hot headedness, and I don't know if I look back at it if it was something that I had to learn to appreciate. But I was scared, and I think that's when I started to learn that I like to be in control more. Um, mm. Like the person dripping the wax on me freaked out. Dripping wax on someone else. Okay, I got this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I guess that's where I loosely like 
understood. I'm, I'm not necessarily wanting to be a dom, but I like to control the situation, and I and I enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but it's about it's only when you allow yourself to experiment with such. Mm-hmm. Uh, such the fringes of your sexuality, then you mm-hmm. really become more clear about what's your anchor, what's your core, you know, what what you're drawn to, and that's my that, that's why I believe that you know it's like if more people engage in kinky practices, they were actually built for a healthier sexual environment. Yeah, yeah. If I heard after my first time trying bondage that crying is normal, I think I would have like been more interested in trying it again earlier. But I was like, well, we're never going to try that again. And then slowly it's like, I'm interested in it now. I didn't really have that relationship to sex that where I could talk about it openly like that. So thank you for that, Zed. But, and also as our guest, go for it. What's, uh, what's your be real? <laughs> oh, um, wow. I guess the most pressing one is that I've lost some friendships because of my decision to be a little bit more public about my sexual proclivities uh, and kink and pornography and content creation. I literally had a friend who messaged me when he saw like my Twitter, you know, he's like, why do you have to make your entire life about sex? Mm. And that was his last message ever. And we were not particularly close to each other, uh, but we we, we were friends, you know, and it was really upsetting for me that that happened. And he chose to like end our friendship, just because of something that he saw online. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been wondering, like, why is it, especially when you talk about being engaged with sex work, it triggers all these really intense kind of make or break or yes or no kind of decisions. Like, I'm not your mm-hmm. friend, I'm your friend, you know, I will support you all the way, or I'm not your friend, or, you know, this kind of very intense reaction. And I believe there's a mix of projecting their own unease or mm-hmm. discomfort with having candid conversations around sexuality. And this is like being conditioned and ingrained since young, you know, especially within the Singaporean education system where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are very uncomfortable with something that's abstract or difficult conversations. And we just want to have very safe, very clear, very certain conversations. Yeah, that's my B-real. <laughs> Just losing a friend and grappling with it and knowing that there's a kind of bifurcation and a fault line that is permanent. I would never be able to tell my family about what I'm doing in Singapore mm. because they would never be able to understand. Like, It's beyond their comprehension why I would find pleasure in certain activities or find pleasure in in making porn, you know. Uh, and that bifurcation is very clear, especially when you go public about making pornography. And there are certain jobs that I will never get hired for. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm plagued with anxiety about what the future might hold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Isn't there also like a legal implication within Singapore around that? I mean, I recently read about an OnlyFans creator in Singapore that was arrested for the content he was making. Yeah, but that's if you make the content in Singapore itself, uh, okay. you know, mm-hmm. and it's about possession. It's more like a, a possessing uh, pornographic materials uh, mm-hmm. and making and circulating and uh, production. Yeah, which is why content creators in Asia have to be really, really careful because in certain countries, it's actually legally uh, uh, proscribed in a way. How did you know it was the right decision for you to be public, to get into this um, mediated sex work? And that, and, and knowing that you're going to have to make some of these sacrifices or these sacrifices yeah. were... 
were there. Um, yeah, I'm at a stage in my life where I finally have no commitments to any institutions, any debts, and I can mm. finally do something that I'm happy and proud of. Mm. And it's always been latent. It's always been part of my practice. You know, uh, I've always performed in my own pieces and I wonder why I keep taking off my clothes. <laughs> but now I know. But part of the reason is also because I found a partner who is going on this journey with me and can support me. And mm-hmm. he's a pornographer. And in order for our lives to be intertwined and for us to work together in a partnership, it's very important that I also participate without shame or humiliation in this mm-hmm. process, you know, because that's part of our relationship. Yeah, so it's a solidifying of, of my partnership and commitment to this relationship and him. Nice, nice. Um, I'm going to take a little break from Folsom and Kink from I Be Real. I've talked about a bunch of stuff anyway. I was being real <laughs> already. <laughs> I want to talk about our... Spotify ratings of this podcast (laughs) because I've been on such a journey about this last week. So the last episode, we were like, hey, rate our podcast five stars. It helps people find the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And, you know, the last month when I checked, we had about 50 reviews on Spotify and they're around like 4.8, which is like good, right? Especially Mm -hmm. for a podcast of our size. I checked last week and we're now at, in, in a month, we're now at 150 reviews on Spotify and the ratings are at 2.9. What is happening? So something's happening on Spotify because on Apple, it's still around like 35 reviews and it's around 4.9, right? So that means that the majority of the ratings happened one in the last month and two are mostly one star ratings for it to be brought down that much. And and there's, there's no way to know for sure the way Spotify is. Like I can't see like when or how it's all rated. But I feel like it's probably coordinated. And two, like it kind of sucked when I yeah. <laughs> looked at that rating one night. And I'm like, uh, people hate us. <laughs> people that, hate that, the podcast. Hurts. It hurts. It hurts. And it's part of the larger thing I'm kind of grappling with with this podcast. Like I'm processing, which is like, and you know about this, having your shit out in the public, right? And you can't control much of how they react. And at some point, our podcast got enough listenership or enough views on TikTok to invite Mm -hmm. like a larger swath of the internet that don't agree with us, right? It's not just our friends anymore, people of our experience, it's other people. And from a 90 minute or 90 second clip can ascribe everything they may think uh, they hate about the world onto like something that we say that triggers them. I think it's first started with that Chris Zoe episode. We did this hot take on like what it's like to date a white guy. And I thought we were just having fun and kind of making fun of it. And that like, we, we also date white guys. And then suddenly the TikTok comments were like, these are men who hate their race. They hate their race. There's, and you, I don't know if you heard this like before too, Zed, but like these are men who hate their race because they like white guys. And suddenly, then it got into like weirder territories. Like they're obviously anti-black because they didn't even mention black people. And I'm just like, where did that just come from? Then the comments just keep coming, and I was just like, okay, I didn't check TikTok for a week. We just felt misunderstood, but also like just silly. Hmm. And then that 2.9 rating also just like, oh, that sucked because I was like, we worked really hard on this. We were, and we hear 
from a lot of people that it's they they love the podcast. But then what what did, why 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 did this happen? And it took me a while to realize like okay, it's probably a coordinated um, effort. And now I'm on, I've processed it enough to process it enough to kind of feel like it's just kind of hilarious. Like what, what could people be downrating us for? And so like, don't you? I'm just going to blame it on Russian bots. <laughs> Russian bots <laughs> who hate gay Asian people. Don't you know, I thought it was hilarious. Like maybe there's just a swath of people who hate listen to us. And so they're like, oh, they want us to rate five stars. We're just going to rate them one star. I have a feeling it could be some K-pop stands because in our last episode there were some spicy takes on K-pop, okay. um, and so it could be like the BTS army, yeah. <laughs> um, or even those like those TikTokers who think we're we only uh, that we hate our race and only date white guys. So that that is to say, like when I talk to other people who have like built just much bigger followings on um, social media. Um, or who are influencers, they're like, you're always going to get that in the beginning. Like, you're excited that it's something's taking off and then you invite this part of the internet and you get depressed about it because they don't understand you and that you feel you control that. And there's like, it's part of the process. And once you learn to get over that, then you're, you're good. It's something that I just maybe had to go through and I process it now and I feel better about the, it. But the way I cope with such reactive immediate response is to really think about what's the intention behind doing what I'm doing and really think about like a projected future. Like this is going to go into the archives. It's going to be in a gay archive in the future, this podcast, mm. you know, and it's oh gosh. a time yeah. capsule. <laughs> it's representing your perspective mm-hmm. at this moment in time. And is distilling it for a person who might listen to it like a hundred years from now, you know. So I'm yeah. in a way speaking to more than just people who are immediately rating you, you know. The media that we produce, be it pornography, be it a podcast, it will live on beyond us, you know. Mm-hmm. It's going to be around for a very long time, you know. And it's just as long as it impacts that one person who might be researching something about the Gaijin experience in like 2052, you know, or like a hundred years from now, you know, they would rely on this podcast as a resource. And I think that's the most important thing to keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, and especially with our last episode, we got a lot of great response, like people DMing us saying that that was heartbreaking. What we were sharing was great, but I did, couldn't even hear that. Cause I just kept thinking of the 2.9. Um, yeah. And it's, it's really heartening to know that in 2052, someone's going to research creations and find out about don't just hemorrhoids. I just really get such a I always find it so funny when you talk about like having these feelings about some of the negative feedback. But I think I had so much experience doing um, drag for like 10 years. And, you know, I'm not a great drag queen, but I'm funny. And, you know, not everyone has to like me. And I think I started to learn that after, like, when I started to get a little bit down on myself about drag, people were coming up to me saying, I saw you eight years ago when I first moved to San Francisco and you made me feel so comfortable with myself. And I think those few people completely blow away the hate that I first internalized. And it just felt better like that's where i started to really like lean into like yeah i don't care if those those few haters they can deal with 
it on their own time, in their own terms. Uh, they'll eventually get some therapy, and they'll come back and thank me. <laughs> yeah, and I... And in those moments, I needed I leaned on you, you know, because you have a you add you add levity to the situation. And then I, I even you know I was talking to another friend about it. I was like, at some point, I was just like, I don't want to do this podcast anymore. Let's just like stop the season after this episode. And I don't I don't think that I don't think that anymore. But you just needed a just, moment to process. Yeah, I needed a moment to process that. That's not part of, out, out of my control. They I can't force anyone to understand anything. But we are going to keep doing what we're doing. I think with that, we're going to end this episode. So Zed, thanks for being here, helping us all feel better and more at home in our sexuality, our bottoming, our kinks, crying while being, <laughs> being in restraint, um, representing us in the industry, taking up space. It means so much. So we learned a lot from you. So thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. So one last thing, though, to send mm-hmm. us off, let's all suggest one kink-related thing that our listeners should look into. Our wonderful guest, Zed, how about you go first? Yeah, just in line with the conversation around, around like podcasts being like an information resource, you know, I think it's an information resource for people who might not have a community of Gaijins, you know, and they mm-hmm. might rely on this podcast just to feel like they're not alone. And when I started Discovering Kink, one podcast that I listened to was What's the Safe Word? And it's a podcast by Pop Amp and Sir Christopher Weston, you know, and it's recorded in San Francisco and they're funny and they're humorous, Mm. but they really did a lot to build a certain kind of awareness and knowledge around kink, you know, and listening to that from Singapore, you know, where there's no kink community, Uh, you know, mm. that was transformational in a way. Yeah, and I wow. recommend them as a resource for especially if you're starting out in kink and you want to find out more information about bondage and yeah, various forms of kink. So keep in mind that there might be a Gaijin listener that is in Singapore or Malaysia, <laughs> you know, who relies on a podcast like this to remind them that they are not alone. You know, mm. is there is there a specific episode that we should start at? As I was looking through that podcast, I was like, I kind of want to see all of these, but is there one that you would recommend as a good like gateway I would say episode? Any, anything that you're curious about. If you're curious about rope bondage, then listen to their rope bondage podcast. Got it. Okay. Know? And they have YouTube videos as resources. It's really helpful. Yeah. And it's funny. Yeah. yeah. Great. Great. My recommendation is that if you're in SF this weekend and it's your first Folsom, just drop by Mr. S Leather. It is such a scene there. The first time I went there, I made out with somebody who was also selling me something <laughs> and now he's uh he's a kink performer if you can afford it buy a harness get fitted for a harness try a bunch of just try or you don't even need to buy anything just try a bunch of things on it really mm-hmm. does some it really did something to me and it might do something to you and so just go out of curiosity just say you're spectating just try some things on you don't have to buy anything and then just see how you feel that's that's one thing that I think listeners uh, should look into. Wow, um, I think another thing is like you know, a lot of people, like you were saying earlier, talk about very specific things in kink that, and that's just maybe how the media might narrow the focus. Um, one of the things I think I I'll do it more of a personal sense is look into furries i kind of find myself into it or more specifically kind of animalia it's not necessarily about just being mm-hmm. furry i like the i like late the latex animal looks and it's something to 
dive into. Take a look around. If you go to Folsom, you might see like a furry fest meetup. Um, and I love the costumery and maybe you will too. Yeah. And with that, we're going to end the episode. Um, Zed, where can people follow you on socials? Um, I'm on Twitter at 2boyxxx. I'm on Instagram at 2boy. It's a private account because of Instagram restrictions. Mm. Uh, and I'm on OnlyFans as 2boy and just for fans as 2boy. Follow the content. And is there a discount code? <laughs> <Just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. The, uh, slide, yeah, slide into my DMs and I'll give you a, like a trial. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and, uh, uh, <laughs> you can follow us at Literally Gaysians on TikTok, Instagram, and also now on OnlyFans and Just for Fans. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> on TikTok and Instagram. Join us in a few weeks for another episode. Until then, we'll see you then. Bye. Bye. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.